everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. I know I just welcomed you, but good morning once again. I'm glad you're here. Um, For those who don't know me, I'm Glenn. I'm the youth pastor and worship pastor here at NAC, and it is my privilege to get to jump into part two of our He Shall Be Called Advent series. Now, quick story. Back when I was in high school, I, uh, I had a summer job working at a farm, actually still the same farm I work at now, mowing the lawn. And this one day, it was early in the season, the snow had just melted, the ground was a little soggy, and I was mowing the lawn and driving along, and all of a sudden, my, I think, right rear tire just sinks, and I'm stuck. It's a mud bath, and it's like, I'm going forwards, backwards, sideways, cannot get out of this hole. So, as every sensible 16-year-old does, I refused to ask for help, and I got off the tractor and tried to literally pick up the back end. (laughs) I had a fair bit of poorly placed ego and arrogance. I actually looked up this week how much that tractor weighs. 1,400 pounds. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) There's undeveloped brain. Let's just say I was met with a sense of powerlessness and humility and quite a sore back for a few weeks. This Advent, we're going to be framing our whole series around a well-known verse, Isaiah 9-6. So let's just start off by reading it together. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It looked way better than that. I don't know what happened. Formatting. Last week, Jonathan kicked off our series looking at Jesus as our wonderful counselor. And so this week, we're going to be talking about Jesus as our mighty God. All of these names that Isaiah calls Jesus some 500 years before he's even born, they aren't just characteristics about Jesus, but they are who he is to his very core. You get what I mean by that? Jesus isn't just a wonderful counselor because he provides good counsel, but he's a wonderful counselor because to his very core, he cares and he loves and wants to help us from our baggage. In the same way, Jesus is not just mighty God because it's something he does. Jesus is mighty God because it's in his very DNA, like literally in his DNA. We see in the Christmas story that Jesus is born fully human and fully God, not half human, half God, fully human, fully God. And if that hurts your brain, you're feeling the right thing. Jesus was fully human and that he was born in the flesh. He lived a human life. He experienced human trials, temptations, desires, hurts. But he did all of his humanness without ever allowing himself to sin. Because at the same time as being fully human, He was also fully God. 
being fully God, he is divine to his very core. In John 1, we see that he's not only present, but active in creation. Later in John, we see that God the Father has given Jesus Christ, the Son, all authority over all creation and over judgment, which when you look across other religions, that is reserved for God alone. Both Jesus being fully human and fully God, and God being three persons all at once, those are distinctively Christian things, beliefs, and foundations to our faith, but it's not ultimately my point this morning. My point is to say that Jesus isn't just called mighty God because he does some mighty acts. He's prophetically called mighty God because Jesus Christ is God himself. God in the flesh, or God in a bod, as Andy Stanley says. Mighty God is the very nature of who Jesus is. When you think of mighty or powerful What do you think of? Personally, when I think of power, I think of the ocean. A year ago, a few friends of mine, we went down to the Dominican for a little tropical vacation on the beach. Now, by far, my favorite thing to do at a vacation like this is to run into those waves. Wave jumping, wave crashing, whatever you want to call it. I remember even Googling when the tides come in so that we would know the optimum time for the biggest waves. So we would spend hours, we'd walk a half hour around the beach and we'd spend hours jumping into these six, eight, maybe 10 foot waves and we would get demolished. All three of us walked away with varying degrees of injuries at the end of the week. (laughs) David debatably tore his ACL. (laughs) For me, there are very few things like the ocean that exudes that much power. When that 10-foot wave crashes into you, you just got to hold your breath and go along for the ride and hope you come back in time. There's no remorse from the ocean. The ocean doesn't care. The ocean does what it does. How humbling that the very thing that we depend on for life has the ability to take it away like that. Just, I did a little research, fun facts. Did you know that over 360,000 people die every year from unintentional drowning? That's 1,000 every day. That's the third highest unintentional injury-related death after car crashes and falls is drowning. And in Canada, 80% of those are males. And when I read that, I thought... When I read that, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Water's no, it doesn't care about who's in the water. And then I figured it out. See, Brittany's idea of fun on a vacation is sitting by the pool reading a book. And my idea of fun is crashing into the big death roaring machine. (laughs) The math adds up. Now, when you think of Jesus as mighty God, What do you think of? Dang it again. I don't know why it's doing that. I think omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience. Omnipotence is that God is all-powerful. Omnipresence is that God is present everywhere. Omniscience meaning that God sees all and he knows all. 
I think very few of us probably have a hard time believing these sort of things about God or a higher power of some sort, that he's got this all-encompassing power. But where Christianity differs from every other religion is that Jesus is infinitely powerful while also intensely personal. For those who don't know me, I have uh, actually a degree in science, specifically geology, um, which I've been made fun of for years. My friends going, hey, what's new with rocks? <laughs> Glad you got a chuckle out of that. <laughs> if you've ever seen the show The Big Bang Theory, um, you know that Sheldon Cooper is very outspoken of his opinion of geology. He has a quote that says, Physics answers the question, what is the nature of the universe? Geology answers the question, what did I just trip over? <laughs> if it's okay with you guys, I'm going to nerd out for a couple minutes and put my geologist hat on this morning. And even if it's not cool, it's where I'm going. When I was in university for geology, uh, my class size was about 50 people, and I was the only Christian in that class. I had a number of people think that I was an idiot for wanting to study geology because apparently in order for you to study the earth and how we got here and all that happened, you can't believe in Jesus. As I got deeper and deeper into my degree, I began to think more and more the opposite that all of the rest of the people in my class are fools. How do you study what we study and not believe in a God? When I look at the earth, geologic formations, rocks, minerals, right down to the chemical structure, I see God, and my faith is emboldened. Dr. Francis Collins is the director of the Human Genome Project, essentially responsible for mapping the human DNA. And he actually came to faith in Christ through his work in the Human Genome Project. He says this, By investigating God's majestic and awesome creation, science can actually be a means of worship. And that is exactly where I found myself in my university classroom, studying the earth and finding Jesus. So before I rabbit trail any further, I'm going to nerd out and then uh, I'm going to bring it back to how does this relate. Has anybody ever heard of the term the Goldilocks planet? A couple of you. The Goldilocks planet is essentially the idea that our planet, planet Earth, like the children's story, is just right. And I just want to unpack a few of these reasons with us this morning. First is our distance from the sun. So we are all carbon-based life forms. Don't know if you knew that, but you are carbon-based. We need to live in a temperature range that allows carbon to survive. To break it down simply, essentially a four to 35 degrees Celsius range, or for you Fahrenheit people, weirdos, 40 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, we all live comfortably in our 18 to 24 degree homes, and if it's a little too cold, a little too hot, we adjust the thermostat. But picture, we don't have homes, we don't have furnaces. If we were to just live in tents, our range would be four degrees to 35 degrees Celsius. 
for our carbon life form to survive. We live on a planet that is at a perfect distance from the sun, that carbon can survive and thrive, and that we can have liquid water on the surface, which is hugely important for life. Essentially, if we were a fraction closer or farther from the sun, we would either be too hot or too cold, and carbon wouldn't survive, and we wouldn't be able to have water like we do. Next, the size of the Earth. An object's gravity is determined by its mass, which means that I have a bigger gravity than most of you. <laughs> the Earth's gravity gives our planet the ability to hold an atmosphere. Our atmosphere has just the right amount of nitrogen and oxygen for us to be able to breathe and survive. If, uh, if our Earth were smaller, the atmosphere would we'd have less gravitational force and there wouldn't be able to sustain quite the same atmosphere, more like mercury. Or if we were larger, our atmosphere would have more dangerous gases and we would die. So Earth is just the right size to have the right mixture of these gases. And aside from suffocation, the atmosphere is also important for maintaining a balance of heat. Without an atmosphere, the nights would be too cold and the days would be too hot. Our moon. Our moon is just the right size and distance from Earth. Most planets our size have a way smaller moon than we do. Ours is very unusual. The moon creates important ocean tides and movements that allows them not to stagnate, which is very important for life. And it also acts as a personal shield from things in space. It, if you look at the far side of the moon, it is like Swiss cheese plattered with meteorites and asteroids hitting it. Water. Earth is still the only planet in the universe to be known to have liquid water on the surface. We have just the right amount of atmospheric pressure to have liquid water at the surface. We refer to Earth as the blue planet because over 70% of it is covered by water. How crazy is it that we can't find a single planet anywhere with liquid water? And we have a huge abundance. Our abundant liquid truly is the most important thing that makes Earth the Goldilocks planet. Then there's the axial tilt. So our, I don't know if you know, the Earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees. It rotates on an angle. This allows seasons to change and occur throughout the year. If there weren't any tilt, the poles would be inhabitably cold and the equator would be inhabitably hot and there would be bands of temperature range and it does not do good things for human flourishing. R rotation. So this is what defines our day, our 24-hour period. Even within our own solar system, there's incredible variance in how long the planet's days are. Venus's day is 5,822 hours. Jupiter's day is 10 hours. If our day were longer, one side of the Earth would be incredibly hot and the other side would be incredibly cold. Next, we have a Jupiter-sized planet beyond Earth. We call this the Big Brother planet. It protects us from incoming stellar bombardment, meteorites, asteroids, whatever. It sucks it into its gravity or redirects it. And then there's our sun. The sun is the perfect size, age, and stability. Any larger, and it would either boil or encompass us. Any smaller, it would not be able to keep us warm enough. Stars also go through phases where they fuse different elements, and ours is in the perfect phase that 
we need for life to survive. And finally, the core composition. Earth has a bunch of different layers throughout it. The inner and outer core interact with each other so intricately that the scientists, we haven't actually figured out what is happening, except to say that this unique interaction gives us our perfect magnetic field to protect us from solar radiation. So I apologize if any of that was over your head. My point to say, I think there was nine things there, nine things about our planet that is so incredibly intricate and detailed that if any of them were off by even a fraction, there'd be no life. It's not like, oh, maybe if three or four of them work, then we can live. No, just in that list, if any of them were off by a little bit, we wouldn't be able to have life on Earth. My point is that Jesus is mighty and powerful. Jesus created all of that and so much more to make this itty-bitty, insignificant planet with a less-than-average star in an insignificant solar system. He did it all in such a way that everything about Earth is just right for human flourishing. And even if one of those variables were changed slightly, human, human life as we know it would not be able to exist. So maybe geology and rocks aren't your thing. They're mine. But I've talked to people in medical fields who say the same thing about their area of expertise, about the intricacy of the human body. You could talk to scientists from other fields. You could talk to even just people who deal with people. They all say the same thing. There is so much intricacy and detail and just rightness not a word going with it, for this to be a fluke or an accident. Heck, even pregnancy. Brittany and I are expecting our first child in a couple months. Yeah. And all that is happening with inside, inside of her is insane. Every Thursday morning, we sit down together and watch the latest video. If you've watched it, it's an annoying song. <laughs> Sorry. We watched the latest video uh, that gives us an update of what has happened in the last week and how they've grown and changed and whatever. The fact that Brittany doesn't have to think about it or manually do anything, her body is just like on autopilot growing this baby. It's crazy. Did you know that in less than four weeks after conception, 20-something days, the baby's heart starts beating? What? It's literally the size of a sesame seed, and there's a heart in there that starts beating. That is a powerful, mighty, creative God. In Genesis 1, we see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then light and vegetation and water and animals and lastly, humans. And just like that, out of nothing, God created everything. And all of the just rightness that we just talked about, he created with beautiful, intricate, intentional power. If you fast forward to John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. Jumping to verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came to the father full of grace and truth. And down to 18, 
No one has ever seen God, but the only, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made himself known. I think it's significant that Isaiah calls Jesus mighty God. 500 years before Jesus even shows up, God, through the voice of Isaiah, proclaims that Jesus is the mighty God. Jesus was present and active at creation, and he is just as much God as God the Father. Jesus, little baby Jesus, born of a lowly virgin, is the Son of God and God himself in the flesh, and he is mighty and powerful to no end. He's the same God that we see moving in the Old Testament. The ten plagues on Egypt, that was Jesus. Marching through the Red Sea on dry ground, Jesus. The three guys in the fire, unscathed, unhurt, and then there's a mysterious fourth person, while all the other guys, the the soldiers who threw them in, they all died, but the three guys in the fire, unscathed. And this fourth guy, who's that? I think you know. Daniel, thrown in the lion's den for an entire night. Joshua calls out to God to make the sun stand still during a battle, and it's recorded that there has been no day like it before or since. A bunch of theories of what happened that day. I'm not going to heed a guess, but what I will say is that God extraordinarily answered a prayer that day. Then there's Elijah standing on a mountain in front of hundreds of prophets, false prophets, and he prays for fire to fall from heaven after he drenched the altar with water. Jesus. These are all Sunday school stories, but what I hope you're hearing from me this morning is that even in these old miraculous stories, Jesus was there. Jesus was working. Jesus is the mighty God. In addition to the many powerful stories in the Old Testament, we see Jesus performing dozens of miracles in the New Testament, and still the craziest moves of Jesus are probably still yet to come as prophesied in Revelation. I hope what you're hearing is that Jesus is, Jesus was, and Jesus will be our mighty God. But personally, I think that what makes Jesus' mightiness so incredible is not the fact that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, mighty, or limitless by nature, but it's how he uses his mightiness for yours and for my sake with grace and mercy and truth and love. Real talk for a second. Any of you go to the gym or just walk around seeing people who obviously go to the gym? Anybody? You've seen someone who goes to the gym? Holy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so you've seen guys go to the gym. Have you seen someone who obviously goes to the gym but also obviously skips leg day? You know what I mean. The guy goes to the gym five times a week and only ever works his upper body. The dude can do push-ups for days, but a light breeze can push him over. He probably looks something like this. I don't know anything about working out. But what I do know is that symmetry is super important. I think we have to be careful that our relationships with Jesus don't end up making us look spiritually like that guy. I think a lot of us respect and revere God. 
We recognize him for his bigness, his powerfulness, his miracles, creating the universe, and we worship him for how mighty he is. The problem is, if that's the extent of your belief in God, that he's big and strong and powerful, but nothing else, that's actually not Christianity. That's deism. Deism is a belief in the existence of a supreme being that doesn't interact with humans. Christianity is about respecting and revering Jesus as the creator of all, matchless and powerful and in charge of everything in the universe while also having a personal relationship where you grow in trust and intimacy with Jesus. When we have reverence without relationship or relationship without reverence, we end up looking like we skip spiritual leg day. So as I start to wrap up, I just want to walk through three ways that Jesus works his power in ways that fuel relationship. These are that Jesus' power works in you, for you, and through you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Man, I love that. When you proclaim Jesus as the Lord and the Savior of your life, and you receive salvation, Jesus begins to rewire you. This isn't cultural Christianity. This is transformational Christianity. Do you ever notice when kids have similar mannerisms or similar characteristics as their parents? They have the same laugh. They walk the same. They have the same reactions. They have the same conversational inflections. The power of Jesus is like that. It's an active power. And when you place your faith in him, he immediately starts to transform you to look and act more like him. Ephesians 1.5 says that God adopted us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. I've said it before from this stage, and I'll say it again. The process of shedding the old and receiving the new is often slower than we'd like, more like a slow turn of the dial than a flick of a switch. But the power of Jesus is working in your life. I believe some of you need to hear that this morning. When your faith rests in Jesus Christ, his power is moving. It is working. It is getting rid of the old and bringing in the new. Whether your old is defined by fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, adultery, lust, lies, shame, grief, you fill in that blank. If you've surrendered yourself to Jesus and allowed him to adopt you into his family, then step by step by step, he will begin to break down those walls and replace them with his desires and his purposes and his power in you. It often takes much longer than we'd like but I promise you, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, his power will and is currently moving in your heart. Secondly, Jesus' power is at work for you. Isaiah 40, 29 to 31 says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and the young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. The term youth in this passage 
if you go back to the original Hebrew, it's referring to someone who's the best of the best, the top of the game. Think like an Olympic athlete. They are the top athletes in the world, devoting their lives to their sport in order to stand alone as the fastest or the strongest or the best jumper or whatever, setting world records along the way. Isaiah is saying that those guys, Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps, Serena Williams, even they grow tired and weary. Even they struggle and stumble and fall. That should bring every single one of us a sigh of relief. A few weeks ago, if you were here, you probably remember me getting a little emotional up here. And by a little emotional, I mean bawling and blabbering like a buffoon. As I said that morning, this season that I find myself in has been pretty difficult for me. It had been weeks and weeks of virtually zero joy in my life and pouring out all of myself, all of my energy without ever filling back up. If you use a car analogy, it's like I was driving my car and I looked at my dash and it said zero distance to empty. And I was like, ah, there's no gas station around. And I puttered to a stop. I'm still finding myself out of that season, but in the depths of it, it was verses like these that, that helped me. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Hmm, that's good. I think some of you here today need to hear that it's okay to not be okay. All too often, we try to facade ourselves from each other and even from Jesus. And if we could ever lay down our pride in our walls, Jesus would be able to do some serious business with us. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, you will never walk alone. It may not look the way that you imagined, but Jesus is going to use his power for his people. The third way that Jesus uses his power in your life is to work through you. The more and more we allow him to work in us and for us, the more we will see his power work through us. In 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5, Paul writes to the church that my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And then later, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10, Paul quotes Jesus saying, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul continues, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A couple months ago at Rock, our youth group here, I was teaching on our identity in Christ. And at one point, I looked at the youth and I said, you're all average. I got a few looks back at me like, how dare you? My mom tells me I'm awesome, and I have 27 participation ribbons on my wall. <laughs> Seriously, can we talk about that for a second? Side note. When I was a child, you used to have to earn your trophy. And then somewhere in my adolescence, they just started giving them away. It was like, hey, you, I know you lost every game, and you set a league strikeout record, and you played in the dirt and picked dandelions and never caught a single ball. But here you go. Have a trophy.
I know I'm about to sound like that ignorant guy who is talking about parenting and his child's not even born yet. But as of right now, I don't want my kid getting participation ribbons. I want them to feel the weight of defeat and going home empty-handed. I want them to understand the value of working hard for something and getting to enjoy the celebration of when it pays off. Side note. That whole tangent just came up because I called the youth average. And here's the thing. We're all average. You're average. I'm average. And that's okay. It frees us up to not have to try to hide from Jesus. We all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. And in these passages, Paul keeps pointing to our weaknesses as how Jesus moves, not our strengths. If you have a church or Bible background, you can think through with me. It seems like God is always using the people that we would never use. Moses murdered a dude with his own hands. Like, that's like close up. David murdered a guy, committed adultery, and then even after that, God calls him a man after his own heart. Peter, he's loud, he's brash, he's impulsive. He denies Christ three times, just hours after saying, Lord, I will never. He's also a racist towards Gentiles. Paul is a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He was in the business of torturing, imprisoning, and even killing Christians. And I could go on and on and on. All but maybe a handful of people in the Bible have major flaws that we would consider disqualifiers. But not for Jesus. He uses the flaws. He uses them with their flaws in incredible ways. <coughs> so just take a breath. You're average, and that's okay. Most of us have never murdered anybody, I hope. But we've got our things. The prerequisite to a life with Jesus and his power working through you is not your strengths. It actually seems like it's the exact opposite. What would it look like if we allowed the mighty power of Jesus to work in us, to transform us from one degree of glory to another, to look more like Jesus every day? What would it look like if we let down the guards of our heart and let the power of Jesus work for us, coming before him with humility, with our hurts and our weariness, our baggage, our sins, and allowed him to renew us, to renew our minds, our emotions, to renew our strength? What would it look like if in the midst of Jesus working to heal those areas of our lives, if in those weaknesses we allowed the power of Jesus to work through us, if we gave our lives as living sacrifices to the gospel of Jesus? What if we could be like Paul and proclaim, for when I am weak, then I am strong? Not because of an ounce of what I've done, but because of the power of the blood of Jesus over broken things, weary things, shame-filled things, and dead things. I'll tell you what would happen. Lives would be saved. Broken lives would be restored. Dead lives would be brought back to true life. 
Jesus' plan A option for the salvation of the world is his church. It's you and it's me. The plan A option for your neighbor, your coworker, for your boss, your in-laws, your siblings, your husband, your wife, your children. Plan A always has been and always will be for you and for me to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day with the power of Jesus working in you, for you, and through you. Spoiler, there is no plan B. As the band comes back up and we sing praises together, maybe you're here this morning and you've been walking this Christian life for years, but you've gotten comfortable and stopped seeking the power of Jesus to work through you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure about this Jesus guy, but you're pleading, Jesus, if you really are the mighty God, would you show your power in my life? I'm desperate. Maybe you're here and you're more of a deist. You believe that God exists as some powerful and personal being, but have never believed in him as a loving, personal, powerful savior. Feel free to do some business right now with God. Whether that means singing praises to his mighty name, or getting on your knees pleading for him to move in a powerful way in your life. Wherever you're at in your personal journey, wherever you're at with Jesus, my promise to you is that if you come to him with a genuine heart to know him and allow his power to transform you, to heal you, and to work through you, he will meet you there. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the wonderful counselor. You are the mighty God. And in the coming weeks, we'll see that you're the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Four distinct, beautiful names that rang true as you walked the earth and still ring true today, 2,000 years later. You are the mighty creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them. But you are so much more than that. You are a deeply personal savior who intimately cares for every one of us. And you desperately want to use your power in us, for us, and through us if we'll let you. I thank you that you are infinitely powerful, but also intensely personal. In Jesus' name, amen.